Hello, you're listening to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Ultra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name is Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. Dietitians are in demand across the world, making emigrating to another country an exciting option to be explored. With COVID travel restrictions beginning to ease, dietitians may be thinking about options of working in a different country. For today's episode, we've brought together two leading UK-trained dietitians to explain their journey of emigrating and working as dietitians in Australia. I'm delighted to be joined by Adele Hug and Peter Collins to discuss their transition from the UK to Oz. Without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Adele and Peter to tell us a bit more about themselves. So Adele, over to you. Thank you very much, Harriet. So I'm Adele. I'm a UK-trained um, dietitian. I'm originally from Australia and have finally come back home after spending 19 years uh, in the UK. I'm an oncology dietitian and I'm currently working freelance with UK-based clients, including OncoHealth and World Cancer Research Fund. I am also studying here in Australia to um, register as an APD, an accredited practicing dietitian here. And I did find out today that I passed my MCQ exam. So I'm very happy with that. <laughs> so one more step on the way. Um, and I um, am really happy to be here to share my journey um, with you and the listeners. Thank you, Adele. And congratulations on passing the exam. Great achievement. Thank you. Peter, over to you. Thanks, Harriet. So um, I also passed that MCQ exam as well, as Elsa. Congratulations. Um, I had to do mine probably over 10 years ago now. So similar to Adele, I'm a UK trained dietitian, um, but I'm originally from the UK, moved to Australia, and now I'm refusing to leave. Um, I did my PhD at the University of Southampton, um, looking at nutrition support in respiratory disease and I'm currently an um, assistant clinical team lead at the Martyr Hospital in Brisbane, and I'm covering critical care. Um, been in Australia now for 10 years, and I, a few years ago, I started Dietitian Network, and that was just a way of me kind of continuing to stay in touch with dietitians from all over the world. So I really appreciate being invited to, to be on this podcast because um, – being all the way in Australia, it's it's not always easy to keep uh, connected with my UK and European colleagues. Thank you, Peter. Great to have you both with us today. Now, as you probably know from listening to Dietitian Cafe before, we normally begin with our quick fire round of questions so that we can learn a bit more about you outside of the workplace. So I'm going to begin by asking Adele, what's been your most memorable meal, Adele? So I think it will have to be after I graduated in 2011 uh, from the University of Surrey, my parents came over for the graduation ceremony and we went to the Fat Duck, Heston Blumenthal's restaurant um, for his very theatrical, many, many courses. I can't even remember how many (laughs) Um, and really enjoyed uh, that special meal and afternoon. Yes. Is that the restaurant where you have snail porridge or something like that? Yes, <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was amazing. How about you, Peter? Have you, um, have you had a memorable meal lately? Oh, I think mine was probably having breakfast in the Maldives. That was, um, that was a good one over water, like a once in a lifetime experience, I'd say. 
the, the food wasn't particularly memorable. It was more about the location. Absolutely. Difficult to top that one, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, Peter, I'm going to move on to the next question. Tell us about someone that's inspired you. Ooh, uh, in the dietitian field, a dietetics field, or could it be uh, anyone? It can be either, your choice. Um, I think generally, more recently, as I've gotten a little bit older, I've t- taken a lot of interest in um, Simon Sinek's work. Like, start with why I read his book, and that really resonated with me with things that I'm doing in um, the field of clinical nutrition and dietetics. I think if anyone hasn't read that book before, I would I would strongly recommend it. Um, if you're already a passionate dietitian, if you read that book, it will probably make you more passionate about what you're doing. That's very interesting because actually someone's just bought me that book and I have to admit it's still sitting on my bedside table. So I think you've just motivated me to go ahead and read that. (laughs) Um, How about you, Adele? Who who inspires you? I think when it does come to sort of one of the reasons why I love being a dietitian, it has to be my patients, um, especially my oncology patients. And at the moment I'm not working with as many in, um, the current work that I'm doing and really looking forward to getting back to being able to be part of their life as they're carrying on with their treatments. Um, as I really find that inspires me to keep going, keep learning, um, and keep living as best as I can. Absolutely. And we look forward to hearing more about your work with oncology patients in this episode, Adele. And when you're not busy clinically, how do you relax in your free time, Adele? As many dietitians do, is I love eating. I love eating out. <laughs> I love enjoying meals with friends and family. Um, and now moving to Perth and with without being in a lockdown, we're able to get out and about and eat um, and have lots of fun times um, with friends and family. So that's I'm really lucky for that. That relaxes me. <laughs> Definitely relate to that, being a big foodie myself. How about you, Peter? Yeah. How, how do you relax in your free time if you have any... Um, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot better now. I'm a recovering academic, so I have a lot more free time than I used to have when I worked in the university sector. So I have weekends, and I normally go to the beach when the weather's good here, and I've got a dog called Audrey, and there's a few local dog beaches, so I normally take her there. Perfect. Sounds idyllic, making us very jealous here in rainy old England. Um, so we're going to delve straight into our podcast questions now. So I wanted to wind back a, a few years to when you were both in the UK. Um, can you tell us, Adele, after you trained and qualified in the UK, did you work in the UK before deciding to emigrate to Australia? So I worked for 19 years in the UK in the NHS um, before coming back here. So I was originally a pharmacy technician. Um, so left home when I was 19 had worked in pharmacy in Perth, moved to uh, the Big Smoke in London (laughs) and worked um, over there. I was always planning on coming home after my two-year holiday visa had expired, but um, met my first husband uh, and we, we stayed on. So I had been there, decided to study dietetics in 2000. Seven, um, And when I graduated in 2011, I was lucky enough to um, do a few jobs around London and Cambridge and then settled back in where I'd studied back in Guildford um, and worked within the NHS 
until the end of 2020 um, when I moved on to OncoHealth. Uh, so I was really lucky to be able to have a varied experience in the UK dietetic world. Absolutely. So you've kind of covered NHS, you've covered freelance, and now you're remote working in Australia. And we're going to come on to that in a moment. Just before I do, Peter, tell us a bit about your journey from qualifying, doing your PhD in Southampton. What did you do in the UK afterwards before that time of moving to Australia? Um, I did a bit of a mixed bag of things. Um, one of dietetics is good and then it allows you to do a number of things. I worked as a research dietitian at Southampton in the NIHR Biomedical Research Centre with, with COPD patients with respiratory disease, looking at their body composition. Um, for almost a year, I worked for the Ministry of Defence in Portsmouth. And we were doing lots of studies looking at um, feeding servicemen during their training through to nutrition support in critically injured servicemen when they get um, um, flown back to uh, the UK, so repatriated. Um, and I did a brief stint clinically before I was offered a job to come out and lecture as a, as a senior lecturer at Queensland University of Technology leading up the medical nutrition therapy component of that dietetics program. Um, so that's what brought me out in Australia initially. And then for about eight years, I worked as a, as an academic teaching, doing research. People will be really interested to hear about how that opportunity of lecturing in Australia came your way. Was that a result of networking? Was it word of mouth? How did that come about? Yeah, networking. I've always been a really strong believer of, of networking, even, even when I was a, sh a student, actually even before even doing dietetics. I spent a lot of time um, shadowing dietitians before I even applied to do dietetics in the first place. Um, kept in touch with Professor Kevin Whelan, even though he didn't accept me on the King's College London program. And I'll never let him forget it. Um, so I was one of the, <laughs> the King's... Many people applied for that program and I accept that I didn't get it accepted, but I'll never let Kevin forget that I never got on that program, but I still became a dietitian. Um, so um, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> I worked with Kevin, Peter. Yeah, um, he well, was one of my first jobs. <laughs> yeah, you should have let me on the program. I'm going to take that to my dietitian grave. <laughs> Hopefully Kevin's listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. So in terms of um, your reasoning for moving to Australia more recently, Adele, and, and particularly kind of during or just towards the end of the pandemic in the UK, what led to you making that big decision? It had always been on the cards for us. Uh, we had actually submitted my husband's visa uh, in January 2020. So visa application. So we had expected to be here a little sooner. Then obviously everything um, kicked off with the COVID pandemic and we put it to the back of our minds and uh, worked and got through that first wave and the second wave. Um, and then it was quite a surprise when in March 2021, the visa was approved. So we didn't want to waste any more time and sort of packed up um, what we had and uh, shipped ourselves off three months later here. So it was all a big whirlwind, um, but it had always been our plan to move here uh, with our daughter. So she's three and a half now um, and spend some time here. I never say anywhere is forever. <laughs> so we will be here for the near future. 
exciting times. And I can imagine that for both of you, emigrating is not a decision to be taken lightly. In terms of the more practical factors, Peter, when you decided to move out to Australia to lecture, um, did you have to kind of think about house, living situation? How did you decide about all those really big factors outside of your work? Um, Luckily, at the time, and I imagine the climate has changed considerably in the 10 years that I've moved to Australia, but the, the university actually took care of pretty much everything. So they organised temporary accommodation. The academic team at QUT were amazing. So it was all laid out for me in terms of um, you've got your UK qualification and a PhD, but you can't practice in Australia. You need to get registered as an accredited practicing dietitian or an APD in Australia. So you have to sit um, exams that, um, like Adele mentioned, and you have to do a practical component as well. Um, so there were some things that I had to do in order to, to be a qualified dietitian over here. But in terms of moving to the other side of the world, it is, it is a huge move. And the, culturally, it's, it was more different than I anticipated as well. It's very different to the UK. Can we talk a bit more about that difference between culture? What were some of the biggest differences that you observed, Peter? Well, when you're teaching um, third-year nutrition and dietetics students and you're saying vitamins instead of vitamins and yogurt instead of yogurt, um, that was the first thing I noticed, that it got a laugh every time I started talking. Um, and I still say vitamins now. Um, but, yeah, it's just a big – it's a huge country. So just getting you – the fact that Adele's in Perth and I'm in Brisbane – it, I never quite appreciated how far that actually is until I flew to Perth. And it's like, I don't know what the equivalent in Europe would be, but it presents huge um, opportunities, but also challenges for our profession in that it's such a huge geographical landscape. Um, I think that's answered the question. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I just want to go back to the exams that you both mentioned. Obviously, Adele, you being the most recent one to have sat the exams. Can you talk us through that process in a bit more detail, Adele? Um, how did it compare to exams that you were sitting at university, for example? Did you really have to go back to your textbooks, do all that in-depth revision? Um, you know, to what extent were, how, how extensive were these exams that you had to sit? So I actually came back in 2011 after I graduated and was sat the exams then. Um, and then I let my registration lapse. So I think that was <laughs> one of the things that I slightly kicked myself for um, because it's only valid for three years after you are accepted. So I knew uh, that it was a little bit more challenging than I would have anticipated. Um, over here, there is a clinical component, a food services component and a public health component. So I did actually dive back into the books. I was offered a few mentors that I took up um, the opportunity to speak with and share information, tips and tricks, uh, as I unfortunately know quite a few people that have failed first time. Um, so I knew I didn't want to in that boat so it did take a long time to go through everything um, and it's very general it's as if you are a graduate dietitian so I actually think if someone is considering the move do it a little bit earlier in your career when you do have really generalist um, sort of still knowledge so it doesn't take so long to delve back into that 
Um, that being said, I really enjoyed going back into especially public health, um, as I really feel that that was a very interesting thing that I think was a great reflection um, of where I can see some of my work heading into. So that was a, a benefit. And out of interest, do you have to fund those examinations, Adele? Are they expensive? Yes, you do. They are. So it is about altogether uh, $4,500. So I can't even remember the exchange rate, £2,500 probably. So each stage, there's three stages that are each you do need to pay for. And if you fail any stage, you need to pay again um, to resubmit. So it can end up being quite a costly endeavour. Yeah, quite a financial commitment then. Um, But obviously... Sounds like it was worth it because, Peter, you've been out there for 10 years and you haven't come back since. No, Brisbane feels very much like home for me. Um, Yeah, it's a good place to live. Queensland, sunny a lot of the time. Um, The beaches are great. The the drawback to the UK is obviously, as with everybody, when they move to the other side of the world, it's it's friends and family. but in terms of like livability, work-life balance, weather, it's not a bad place to be. What do you think have been the biggest benefits in terms of your career, in terms of the emigration that you, you did nearly 10 years ago? I think Australian dietetics in Australia is very, very strong. Um, that was the first thing that kind of blew me away. Um, it's just how research active, particularly in Southeast Queensland, we've got quite a number of dietetic programs in, in Queensland. Um, and a lot of them, Q, QUT, the one that I went, that I was working on for eight years, it was the second oldest dietetic program in the country. It had been going for 43 years, I think, at the time when I was there. Um, and just the, the strength of the program, the strength of the dietitian graduates in Australia is just really, really high. And just the research culture was just great as well. So that was the first thing that really resonated with me. Um, I've previously been around clinical teams where it's just research. It's just this thing that makes busy clinicians even more busy and it detracts away from what you get paid to do. Whereas certainly locally here, research is seen as just core business. It strengthens business cases. It grows dietetic departments. It prevents budget cuts. It improves patient care, all those types of things. So it was really refreshing. Uh, And Adele, just adding to Peter's answer, what do you feel are the, the biggest benefits in terms of you emigrating in the last year or so? So having... I'm still continuing my work from the UK. So I'm now just sort of um, feeling my way around how dietetics works over here. So I'm doing a lot of networking, linking in with the West Australian Oncology Dietetic Group. They've accepted me um, on that meeting, which is every three months. Um, So I'm actually a little bit, um, well, I'm really excited to work out where I can fit in, how my career could develop. I'm hoping some of my skills, especially in the digital um, health field, will be beneficial because, as Peter said, Australia is huge um, and trying to provide cancer services across, across West Australia or any um, healthcare services must be such a challenge in so many different ways. So I'm looking forward to seeing how I might be able to um, help in that 
uh, field and being able to um, yeah practice and develop and grow and hopefully some research in there as well. <laughs> Definitely. And in terms of the um, practicalities of working for a UK-based company, with you being in Australia, have there been any challenges along the way? I'm, I'm thinking perhaps the time difference might be one, one obvious one. Yes. <laughs> so I've actually gotten into the zone now where I work um, two or three evenings a week. Uh, so have the benefit of being out and about in the day, uh, can spend a bit more time with my daughter and you know, do an exercise class, catch up with my friends. So a little bit different lifestyle with that. Perth is a very sleepy town. <laughs> um, I can say it because I'm from here. Uh, it's not uncommon for people to go to dinner at 5.30. So um, for me to work in the evenings um, isn't really uh, a bother. Um, I think the other practicalities, the hardest thing was some of the legalities around things with insurance um, and things like that. I'm not sure if you want me to share now, Harriet, some of those challenges. Yeah, I think especially whether you maintain your registration with the BDA and the HCPC would be interesting to hear as well. So I plan to um, definitely my registration with the HCPC as a um, registered dietitian. And I do want to remain a member of the BDA. I'm also a committee member of the oncology group for the European Federation of the Associations of Dietitians, EFAD for short. And to, but to maintain my committee membership there, I still need to be a BDA um, member. However, one of the spanners in the works, I guess, is that the BDA will only cover my um, professional indemnity insurance for three months after you, you no longer domicile in the UK. So that was um, a bit of a shock. And whilst I'm in the middle of my registration process here, I have managed to secure a bespoke package with an insurer here that will cover worldwide practice, excluding the US and Canada, um, for me to remain practicing in the UK on my UK registration from Australia. It's a little bit confusing, and I think that's been one of the biggest challenges to make sure I was safe um, and my patients were safe and the freelance contracts that I have have been safe. Yeah, such an important factor, though, and um, I can imagine it can add up to be quite expensive, maintaining registrations with all those different bodies. Yes. Peter, is that something that you found? Have you, have you kept up any of your registrations in the UK or have you found that, that not to be kind of applicable to you now in your current stage? Um, I, have a, up, I have kept them up to date. I'm still, I, I, think, I think I'm still a HCPC registered dietitian. Um, whether I keep, keep registered, I don't know. Um, I was a member of the BDA for quite a while as well. And even as an international member, I still found that useful. Um, I think I am actually, I'm a BDA member. Yeah, I am still a BDA member. I get the diet. I do get dietetics today, which I find a great, um, a great resource. I love reading it just to see what um, UK dietetics is up to. Um, and I also get the CN magazine as well, which I'm, I don't think I'm meant to be getting, but they give me a sneaky copy. <laughs> um, I like reading that too. So it is nice to keep, it's like a nice link back to the UK. Um, I still see myself as a Brit living in Australia. I don't think I'm, I don't see myself as an Aussie. 
Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, those magazines are a great, great way to kind of keep up your CPD wherever you are in the world. And of course, Peter, you've, you've gone on to establish dietitian network, which is a great way for global dietitians to connect. I know that during the pandemic, you know, you very kindly offered up free membership for a certain period of time. Can you tell us a bit more about what led to you creating dietitian network and, and what it does? It was mainly from moving from the UK to Australia, I was quite active in the special interest groups in the BDA. And then also I was on the ESPN early career faculty. So I was on the ESPN forums as well. And then I moved to Australia. And again, there's great conversations that are happening on the Dietitians Australia membership forum. Um, but I'm not, a, I don't like silos and I recognized that there was lots of questions that were being asked by people, uh, particularly niche, really specialist clinical questions. So you can imagine if you're, a, if you've got a really niche question in say fatty acid metabolism in cachectic oncology patients, and you're asking just Australian dietitians or just UK dietitians, you're not going to get as good an answer as if you, if you put it more broadly um, across inter an international group. So that was the whole purpose of Dietitian Network is that over time, I'm hoping we'll get more and more members in more and more specialities and for a relatively cheap uh, membership for the year, they get access to CPD opportunities, video presentations from expert presenters. There's based on feedback from members, we don't have any advertisements, none of our None of our uh, webinars are brought to you by whatever sponsor. It's, it's paid, the presenters are paid for their time and their expertise at their going professional rate by the membership itself. So it's trying to um, create an opportunity. We've actually got a course coming out later this year, um, Advanced Dietetic Practice mm -hmm. in um, Celiac Disease. So that's being produced by some other dietitians. They can sell their courses on our platform um, and the and the and dietitian network essentially hosts the course anyone from any any dietitian in the world can access that course and then the money goes to the people that created the course so again i'm a massive advocate for dietitians earning money from their skills set um and that was another thing that's been uh, allowing me to give money back to clinicians that give up their evenings and weekends doing amazing content that helps other dietitians. Yeah. And I know from speaking to colleagues, I know a lot of people have found your um, platform to be incredibly useful, particularly during the pandemic when obviously everyone shifted to working from home and didn't necessarily have that kind of normal CPD interactions that they would have. Um, has the pandemic had a, any kind of influence on dietitian network, Peter? Um. Not, um, not really. It's growing slow and steady. It is a bit of a, it's, I work full time as a clinical dietitian. So I'm very much busy during the week and I spend my Sunday afternoon, um, uh, working on, um, the, the platform and contacting presenters, asking them if they'd be interested in presenting, working with course creators. Uh, we've even got uh, an ebook that's going to be launched on the platform as well. The, the, making the course free. So there was the master, the nutrition care process course was made free in response to the pandemic because I, I was teaching students at the time and I could just see the, the struggle that they had with the disruption that it was causing to their learning. Um, and it, I've 
kind of feel for all dietetic students that were going through their programs during that time. It's not, it's not an easy time to be remote learning something that is quite practical like diet dietetics, where you do want those ideas to kind of come together and work on case studies and definitely be in the, in the therapeutic kitchen and modifying menus. That's really important to what we do um, to do. You, you can't do that remotely. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of your um, students that you lecture, Peter, have you had a significant change to the degree program as a result of the pandemic? Because in the UK here, we've obviously been locked down for a long amount of time. A lot of university students were having to do all their lectures remotely. Has that been the same in Australia? Yeah, it has. And being affiliated to no university now, I can probably speak a bit more candidly about what I think. I, again, I don't think you can do dietetic programs. Really, you can't create really effective, highly skilled, very confident. And I'd say the confidence was the big thing. Dietitians, if the bulk of the program is remote learning, it just doesn't work like that. Um, students locked away in bedrooms at home, uh, watching lectures um, is not as good as getting them into um, flipped classrooms, where they'll watch a bit of a lecture, but then come together in a tutorial and really thrash out how you might manage a patient, bringing different clinical guidelines, interpreting different research. That's where, that's how you create really good dietitians. It's not by having programs that are 80%, 60% online. Yeah, it's that, that fine balance, really difficult. But Adele, from what you said, it sounds like you're just beginning to kind of get back to some kind of sense of normality with restrictions lifting a bit. Is that right? Yes, definitely. And I find the same as Peter's just mentioned, the, the challenges during the pandemic, even with student training, was very difficult. And having just spent um, nearly two years as a almost fully home worker, I think it's hard for people, especially dietitians who are often um, more social, being able to communicate, especially if they're working in a clinical environment. Um, some of the projects I'm working on now are great to do for home working, but I'm really missing that sort of department um, team working aspect that you do get from face to face. Um, and I think being able to find that balance between the two is important for everyone uh, to find that happy medium that works for them with the restrictions lifting. Yeah, I'm sure a lot, a lot of people listening can mm. relate to that. Um, Adele, I just wanted to go back to your work with Onco mm -hmm. Health. Can you tell us a bit more about what Onco Health are all about and what your role involves? So Onco Health is a fully digital um, platform and service providing surgical and cancer prehab and rehabilitation programs. So we have developed an app um, and an admin program that we're able to support all patients um, on a program with our health professionals to um, provide a holistic service for prehabilitation. So I've come into their um, into the team really with a cancer background um, where I am very keen for prehab to be offered for all cancer patients, no matter what treatments they're having. I feel they should have a, a prehabilitation program that's going to support their nutritional status, their um, exercise and physical activity, their psychological health, um, and they're just being able to provide that um, in a more scalable um, 
accessible way is really what we're trying to achieve there. So we've got lots of different programs that we're offering depending on patient groups and contractors. Um, and I'm still doing a little bit of work from here on those um, with some insurance companies and um, some NHS cohort as well. So really glad to be able to be a part of that. And hopefully um, whether it's for Onco or using very much the, the Macmillan prehabilitation sort of guidelines, hoping to be able to initiate those things here, especially where we have that really diverse um, and expansive country that I think that sort of service is much needed. Um, so hopefully that's something that I'll be able to bring on here in many different ways. And in Australia, do you think there's the same um, recognition of the importance of prehabilitation like there is in the UK at the moment, Adele? I think it's in its infancy, but it is growing. Similarly, in the same way that it is in the UK, it really much depends on a postcode lottery um, and where you've got some services available. I think it is still traditionally in some of the more high-risk um, cohorts of patients, upper GI um, patients specifically. Uh, however, I think there's a real big need for it across, um, across the patch, across diagnosis and surgical, especially when our patients have been sitting at home for longer. They're more frail. Um, they're more isolated. There's also delays to diagnosis. I mean, I could talk to you all day about <laughs> prehab, um, but I think there's a, a huge need for it here. And the sort of information I've discovered is that there isn't as much, but hopefully things can change and I can sort of start some discussions around that and see where the service can develop. I just wanted to ask you both actually on that note, in terms of the general healthcare system in Australia, can you talk us through how it differs to the National Health Service, NHS in the UK? Does a similar kind of entity exist in Australia, Peter? Um, yeah, yeah, there is a public system. I actually work at Marta Health in Brisbane, so I work across um, a public and a private intensive care unit. Um, so we've got a, both a public and a private hospital, and the, di the dietetic department works across. It's quite unique in that it works across both the public and the private patients. Um, if you earn over a certain amount of money in Australia, the government gives you a bit of a nudge in that it will just tax you more unless you get private health insurance. So that's another way of lifting some of the burden off the public health system. Um, so there, we all have to have private health insurance, which is um, you don't have to have it, but you get you get a slight tax from the government if you don't have it. Um Waiting times to see GPs, uh, and I don't know what it's like around other parts of Australia, but if I need to see my GP, I just I call up my GP practice and I can go and see them that day. There's no, I speak to my mom and dad and it's like, well, you, you, you know, we can get in in a couple of weeks or I think one time it was months. I was like, wow, uh, okay, I've just called my GP up and we just go. So I don't know why that is. It must just be. I don't know if we've got more GPs in Australia or if we, I don't know. I don't know what the reason for that is, um, but there are some slight differences. Nutrition support is different. So um, um, with enteral feeding in Queensland, for instance, there's a co-payment that patients have to make. If we want to prescribe all nutrition supplements to public patients, there's a co-payment that they have to make. 
Um, whereas private patients, they pay the full cost of the nutrition support. Whereas if you go to other states in Australia, I think Victoria, for example, the oral nutritional supplements are 100% public paid for. Um, so there's no co-payment for the patients. So there is an, in, it, as in the States, it's the same when you've got different states as in the United States. Um, but in Australia, because we've got these big states, they have slightly different healthcare systems in their own right as well, which is uh, interesting. Very interesting. So some similarities, some differences. Adele, have you noticed any, any differences yourself having been in Australia for a few months? I have actually. So we have mainly personally just trying to navigate the system, having lived away for so long. And when I was 19, I didn't tend to pay much attention to these things. <laughs> so um, I have found we've accessed healthcare much quicker um, for the whole family. As Peter said, we've managed to get GP appointments a lot quicker, um, specialist appointments, uh, surgery, things like that is a lot quicker to access, but you need money. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've found, that it must be a big challenge for some people to um, get the, the care that they need, especially in what I know as primary care, so in the community, um, sort of working out their ways, a lot longer waiting times if you're needing to um, wait for the healthcare, the government healthcare system called Medicare, um, compared to being able to self-fund or use private health insurance. There's a much bigger industry over here for private health and healthcare in general. Um, private healthcare gives discounts off things like massage um so there's lots of lots of differences in my opinion um for that sort of thing it's trying to work out how it all fits in and i think that will be one of my biggest challenges when i start working as a professional dietitian over here just working out how that works and i think that will be one thing i'll be um getting a some sort of mentor <laughs> that can help me through that um to make sure I'm doing everything I need to do, um, especially when I'm freelancing here, as well as if I work in a um, dietetic department too. Yes, that's very interesting. And when you talk about working in a dietetic department, I'm wondering what's the traditional route for dietitians, newly qualified dietitians in Australia? Peter, perhaps you can answer this one. Do they tend to go into the public health system for a while? Do they do freelance? Is it the same in the UK, do you think? Um, it's... It, in Queensland in particular, we, we have a lot of graduate dietitians in, in Queensland. So I don't know what the last time I counted, it was, it would have been three, three to four, could be up as high as three to 400 graduates um, to get a job in the public system. I've not checked recently, but there were maybe Queensland health would probably, and that's the public system would probably have, four to six positions for new grads. So it's just incredibly competitive. If you can get a job in an acute hospital in Queensland, um, it's, it, you've, you've done pretty well. It's very difficult to get in. There's the number of applicants supplying is just so high, but jobs do come up all of the time. But um, what I've said to dietitians over the years is that have been struggling to crack into the um, the clinic, the acute space, they've been doing a lot of private practice work, which is where a lot of new grads go. Um, and that presents challenges in itself. 
is a lot do go to the UK and work. I mean, it, I, I'll, a lot of my graduates, I would say, go on NHS jobs and just type in dietitian and their minds are blown that there's that many positions available. And they're like, wow, I'm going to go. Um, where's Huddersfield? And I'm like, ah, don't worry about it. Just, just go. You can. <laughs> Gosh, I didn't realize it was so, so saturated, the job market in Australia. Um, Adele, have you, I know you've been sort of looking at the job sphere and seeing what opportunities are available since you've moved out there. Is that something that you've found? Is it incredibly competitive out there? I am not yet applying for dietitian jobs as I don't have my APD status. So, but I have been looking at different positions in the healthcare system and there seems to be a lot of project officer, project manager jobs that um, I meet the um, essential criteria for the job applications are similar to NHS jobs uh, in that way. And that's actually what I have just started applying for. I think um, I really want to get into the health service to see how it works. <clears throat> and some of these roles are really interesting. Um, there was one for cancer strategy across the West Australian cancer uh, country health service. There was an innovation job that had just come up um, looking at changing pathways and innovating um, innovating the sort of what the structures within an established health service to help meet the developing needs, which we know are changing with more, um, more patients coming in and us needing to streamline services. So there's some interesting things out there that I'm actually looking for a little bit different and you don't have to have the APD status for that. So because I won't be APD registered till the middle of this year, I'm actually hoping to sink my teeth into something in those spheres for 6, 12, 24 months um, alongside, I'm sure, some freelance and UK-based work, which I can't say no to <laughs> um, because I enjoy those things as well. So I think that will be where my career starts, but let's watch this space. Indeed. Yes. And how long does it take for the APD to come through roughly? So I have my practical um, that has three components in May. So I think it takes up to six weeks after that to um, <clears throat> get your results. And then I'm sure my registration will come soon after that for another payment. Yeah. <laughs> Expensive process, isn't it? Well, fingers crossed for you. Um, Thank you. Coming towards the end of the episode, but just before I, I wrap things up, I wanted to ask you, Peter, um, are nutrition support products different in Australia to the UK? I'm thinking if you have a UK dietitian moving out to Australia, they're going to be very familiar with all the UK ONS companies. Is, are they, some of them are global, I know, but not all of them are. So how does that differ in Australia? Um, yeah, they're, they're, we have all the same companies here in Australia. So um, all of the big big companies that you'd imagine from a uh, medical nutrition industry, M&I perspective. We've actually got in Queensland, we've got some local um, ones as well that have been going quite well, particularly with the um, texture modified um, or should say thickened fluids versions of the, the supplements. Um Locally here, I mean, our hospital, we've got a tender with one company, but Queensland Health actually have a huge tender that goes across all products and all. So as a dietitian, you can prescribe any product that you think is clinically indicated and would be better, best tolerated for your patient. So that's quite unique. Um, so I know that 
uh, certainly when I was in the UK, NHS trusts tend to, to be, or HHSs as they were at the time, I think. No, not HHSs, that's Australia, whatever they were. CCGs, I think. CCG. Um, CCG, yeah. They, they're locked into a tender with one particular company, whereas Queensland Health, they don't have that issue. If you've got a particular feed or a particular ONS that you want to use in a particular patient group, then you can you can prescribe that supplement. So that's I think that's yeah. good. It's kind of very similar to medications, I guess. Yeah, interesting. You get that freedom and flexibility as a health professional. And do dietitians prescribe them themselves or do they have to go to the GP to get the prescriptions done? Um, dietitians prescribe here, yeah, supplements um, in Queensland for sure. Um, that's a good way of pre- reducing waste. Um, it is a bit of a bottleneck, um, but certainly in, in hospitals. So if no patients, and in our hospital, no patient receives oral nutritional supplements unless a dietitian is has scripted them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Thank you. So as we come to the end of the episode, I wanted to ask you both if you have any advice for anyone who's thinking of emigrating, particularly from the UK to Australia. If you could wind back a few years, what, what advice would you give to someone in that situation? Um, Adele, let's start with you. Possibly not moving mid-pandemic. <laughs> I think that put an extra layer of um, stress and delay for things. I think my reflections, I wouldn't have changed anything, um, but it is a stressful journey, but it's very exciting at the same time. So everyone would be different at what their um, needs are when they travel. I was lucky in the fact that my husband can go out. He's a bricklayer. And he was able to go out on day dot and work. So that was one of the benefits for us. I think if I had to work, I would have done my examinations from the UK, which you can do. They're all fully remote now. So that's another benefit um, in the recent pandemic that things have moved online. So you can do it before you come and then you're actually ahead of the game for that. So that might work for some people. I think, um, like Peter said earlier, there is quite massive cultural differences and although you speak the language um, it is really different and I do miss being the token Australian um, in the department compared to (laughs) being around loads of Australians all the time (laughs) where um, and just readjusting to things I think has been different uh, for me living overseas for most of my adult life so um, just take it a day at a time and link in with people I have been networking back and forth, UK, Australia, to really find out um, the best way to do things. I have a mentor from the Dietitians Australia. Uh, She's brilliant, really helped me out um, on some European things last year, as well as reconnecting with her now that I'm moving into the jobs market here. So utilise those um, and always I'm happy for anyone to get in touch with me as well if you have anything you want to ask. Thank you, Adele. And Peter, do you have any advice you'd you give to someone in this situation? Um, I think that, yeah, the cultural things are, are a big thing. Um, the distance is, is huge. You, you just don't realise the distance. <laughs> it's, it's a long way and the time difference makes it a little bit uh, more challenging as well. Um, but I've loved it. I've just, I've loved everything about it. It's, I thoroughly would recommend I, would, I think it would make you a better dietitian whether you come to Australia and go back or whether you stay here and you bring your kind of culture where you've come from. Um, it just, 
it's there are slight differences, but you'll be able to. There are transferable skills that we can have. Um, you're you're a better dietitian for it for sure. And if there was one message that you'd like people to take away from this episode, what would that be, Adele? I think I would still have to say something like the world is your oyster. It is such an opportunity. If you have the privilege to be able to travel, uh, then, you know, grab it with both hands, dive in and see where it takes you. Peter, any, any thoughts to add to that? Yeah, I think very similar. Dietetics is a really unique profession in that it just nutrition covers such an expansive areas in terms of our daily lives then if there if there aren't even dietitians working in certain areas i'd even be looking at those as a dietitian to work in uh, i think if you're bored of your job or you're not learning or you feel like you're stagnating as a dietitian then you just need to change things up there's huge opportunities out there um, whether it be in industry academia clinical private practice at home overseas you name it i think it's if you remain open-minded and just keep networking, that's the main thing. Fantastic advice from both of our interviewees, Adele and Peter. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your valuable experience with us. And a huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to the Dietitian Cafe podcast, please do consider subscribing or leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon. Bye.